Hello, this is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and I have a special guest today. Uh, excited to speak with Frank. Uh, just literally met him, uh, well, pretty much uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> we have a long-storied relationship, Frank, you and I do. Um, no, I know quite a bit about you based on your, uh, your LinkedIn profile and the fact that um, you have a, a compelling story to share. So we were talking a little bit. You're in Portland, Oregon, and uh, as I was alluding to, our tour... Well, outside of Portland, right? Yep. Eugene, the People's Republic of Eugene, yes. Absolutely. I know right where Eugene is. Um, but nonetheless, we're talking about some of the images that people have in their minds when they hear of certain uh, communities. And you say, I think, what'd you say? Hellfire? <laughs> no, a hellscape. Um, you know, it's a... Uh, oh, that's right. <laughs> a dystopian um, hellscape. Some I didn't believe. see that, man. No. I didn't see that. I, uh, people were friendly. I, I had the best sushi I've had in my life in Portland. Or People say, you know, I was just at the airport. I didn't see any smoke. <laughs> you know, so for whatever it's worth. Uh, so you have a diverse um, range of different things that I want to kind of talk about. Uh, yeah. You're active in, in TED Talk coaching, uh, comedian, The Tonight yeah. Show. Uh, you're, 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 you're great, authentic vulnerability of sharing your suicide attempt uh or ideology i guess uh suicidal ideation yeah um, both where, where do you want to start where do you want to start uh fourth grade told my first joke i kids laughed teacher was hysterical and at that moment i decided i was going to be a stand-up comedian and that was it that was it, that I was was it. The Done. impetus well, to who you are today yes well my family's funny besides being you know besides having more nuts uh was it uh, in my family has more nuts than a squirrel turd um, they're also very funny. And 12th grade, there was a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand up. I did the one told my mom, I'm going to be a comedian. And she said, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to Carolina, got a couple of college degrees, moved to San Diego to work for the insurance company that my father-in-law at the time worked for. And that was kind of my first wife's vision of our life was I would be an insurance man like her dad. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there was a comedy store branch in, um, in San Diego, a comedy store as in the one up in LA on sunset. And okay. I went to open mic night and I'm halfway through my set. And I heard a voice inside my head say, you're home. Cool. So I decided at that moment, that was April 1st, 84, I would do stand, I was going to do stand up for a living. I had no idea how. I thought about, thought about writing a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Because I had no idea how hard it was. But uh, about a year and a half later, December 85, I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 35 years, I'm going on the road to be a stand up comedian. Would you like to come along simply for the ride? And I thought she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we gave up our jobs, gave up the apartment, put everything in storage. I couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And we were on the road together doing clubs. I was, she just came along for the ride. For 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Are you kidding me? No, seven years and change, no home. And I worked with people who are famous now, Dennis Miller, Foxworthy, Ron White, wow. Bill Engvall, Ellen, Rosie, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Steve Harvey. Uh, back when they were just comics. Sure. Yep. And then I did some radio for a while, uh, about 18 months. And then the comedy club thing busted, the boom busted. 
And so I was very clean as a comic. So I thought I'll do corporate comedy. And people sometimes ask, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? About $5,000 a day plus travel. So I, I'm no math major, but that made sense to me. Right, right. Did that till 2007 or eight. Recession hit the last one. Yeah. Bookings dropped off 80% practically overnight. My wife and I lost everything we worked for in 25 years in Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Okay, gotcha. Somebody in a keynote recently said, what, what did it taste like? I said, relief. Because one of the things I teach people is that oftentimes suicide is not about wanting to kill yourself. It's most often, I believe, about wanting to end the pain. And that's the only yeah, way absolutely. you see to you know, to do that. If, if, if I could have done that and woken up the next morning pain-free, that would have been fine. But you know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Not with a handgun. So, um, three times as many women, by the way, die by suicide than men. Men tend to complete because they use fire. I, I read that somewhere. Yeah. I read that yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And so, uh, when the speaking business came back, meeting planner said to me, you know, the economy had changed. They said, look, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you five grand anymore just to be funny. You've got to teach the audience something. I thought, mm -hmm. and I had always wanted to Jeff to make a living and a difference. I just had no idea how. And I bought Judy Carter's book, The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And Judy's a friend of mine. She recommended it. She said, Frank, if you want to go from funny speaker to speaker who's funny, read my book. And it's almost mm -hmm. a step-by-step -step fill in the blank. I, thought, I went into it thinking I got nothing to teach anybody. And about halfway through, I realized, given my but family history, my history mentally, I have two mental illnesses. Uh, if I took some suicide prevention training and got some certifications, which I have now, I could keynote. The thing I found fascinating and sad when I began that journey, as I was preparing for my first TEDx, I... I said to my wife, how am I going to convince meeting planners I can do something serious? And she said, do a TEDx. And I said, what's a TEDx? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got an email that week from Canada, from British Columbia. They said, here's the link. Would you like to apply? Sure. I got it. And many people who have a mental illness never tell anybody. I had never told anybody. Right, right. Nobody knew. My family, my friends, my wife. And so I came out of the mental health closet on stage in that TEDx revealed that I have major depressive disorder and something far more rare called chronic suicidal ideation. And the first time you really publicly talked about it? Only time. First time. First time. You know, it's like first uh -huh. caller, uh, first time, was it first caller, uh, first caller, long time listener, first, first time, time listener. Yeah. 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 Well, first time I always mess that up too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, nobody knew. And my, when my wife was getting ready to play, once it posted on YouTube, my wife's getting ready to play it and watch it. And I said, look, before you hit play, there's half a dozen things I need to tell you. You don't know. She uh, didn't know. I, nope. I said, I don't want you to learn it. Watch Holy the video. cow. Yep. Well, you know, we're people with mental illness, often great actors. I have a screen actors guild card for a reason. I'm a good actor. Yeah. I mean, I was married to my first wife for five years. I acted like I was happily married. I'm a great actor. <laughs> um, so. Cha-ching. Yeah. Like thank you. Boom. And anyway, I did the first TED talk and then I got contacted by two other events and said, do you have any more mental health topics? And I said, absolutely. So that gave me three. And then I applied for the other four. So I don't have, I don't have the world record on views, but I do think there's nobody else in the world with seven TEDx talk and they're all on mental health to, you know, to reinforce my brand as the mental health comedian. And 
<clears throat> people ask me, does being a comedian keep you from getting booked? No, you, you misunderstand. They want the lived experience. They want the suicide prevention training. And the fact I can inject some well-placed, personal, funny stories to give them relief in between those serious bits. Um, they call it comic relief for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's a psychological principle that if you tell somebody ser something serious and then you give them something funny and then their brain is much more well prepared for the next piece of serious business. Receptive for you. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I believe as a speaker, you need to move people emotionally. And I try to move them from tears to laughter to tears to laughter, you know, cause I get choked up when I tell my stories on stage and they know, I mean, I'm not weeping, but you can tell that I'm on the verge of tears. And I, that is a, I believe a superpower, a man, especially standing on stage, admitting he has emotional yep. issues and getting choked up. It do gives you, people the permission to give voice to their problem. Do you feel that when I hear stories of comedians and they're talking on podcasts and stuff, and then they tell me, I got a really new acquaintance of mine. Uh, she's a comedian. Uh, we have, I have a local friend here that runs Penguins Comedy Club here that actually worked for the guys that did the, um, oh, the prank show. What's that called? Uh, those four guys that do the prank show. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I can't remember now. But anyway, he was their manager for a while, and he's from Cedar Rapids here. And anyway, uh, it seems to me when every time I hear these comedians talk and these podcasts, they all of a sudden open up this personal torture hell that they've been living in. And so let me ask you this question. Is comedy like the ones that are really good at it? Are they the ones that sometimes with the most tortured souls because they, there's something about comedy helping them therapeutically when they're on stage. And then when they get off stage, they have to go back to dealing with really who they are and like comedy provides this outlet for them or I, am I missing something? I know that's, that's common wisdom, but I'm not sure that's true. Uh, yeah. I think two things are operating there. Uh, maybe three comedy is tragedy plus time. Um, mm. Mike McDonald comedian out of Canada said one time, there are two kinds of comics diagnosed and undiagnosed. Uh, I yep. think, What's happening, I did a TEDx on this called Mental with Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. I kept bumping into people who are mentally ill, high functioning, had some of their amazing ability, writers, comedians, actors, you know. And I thought it can't be a coincidence that they have mental illness and this mental ableness. And that was the point of the talk is that it starts off like this. What if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation. Absolutely. I said to the audience, Absolutely. Uh, I don't think I'm broken. I think I was made this way. I think my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my creativity, imagination, comedic ability. It's same brain, same wiring. Oh, I love it. I think a lot of comics and creative people live that fine line, you know, on that fine line between the, you know, between the, what I was, the point I was trying to make in the TED was that what if we could convince a child that yes, you have a mental disability, but guess what? You probably have some mental abilities your peers can't touch. So you change the frame from strictly oh, negative to negative and positive. And it would change hopefully stigma, bullying, and eventually youth suicide. If you could convince them and their peers that, Hey, look, yeah, he's weird, but man, have you seen him draw or. Yeah. 
whatever it happened to be. So I tell parents, look, I've never met a parent with a child who had a mental or emotional issue that didn't have some other extraordinary ability, even if it was just being really, really smart. I'll tell you, my mind's going in different directions because as you're talking, I'm like, wow, you are so like my mind in regards to how you view this. Because when I was a child, I grew up with a dad who was a doctor. Uh, my dad's still alive. He's 90. And I have attention deficit. Uh, I'm 56 years old, so I've really learned to use it in, in lots of really good ways, but it gets me in trouble a lot. But when I was little, my dad, being a brilliant physician in my mind now, never told me attention deficit was a disorder. He said it was a superpower. And he told me, little Jeffy, he'd say, you know, when you're at school looking out the window and you can't focus and your legs are tapping, he goes, that's something you don't put in kids. That's something you take out of kids. And he said, this is something you have in your bloodstream for the rest of your life. Lean into it, nurture it, and use it to your advantage. So I grew up feeling sorry for the other kids at school that didn't have a superpower called attention deficit. You know what we do today, Frank? Medication. My son was my son was 15. My son was 15. Seth goes to the doctor for attention deficit. Doctor adds the word disorder at the end of it, gives him Stratera. So now his attention deficit's a disorder. And if he doesn't take Stratera at midnight, he turns into a werewolf and eats his friends. So that turned into Adderall. It went to alcohol, marijuana, went to selling Adderall, went to drunk driving, breaking and entering, jail, cocaine, prison, heroin, fentanyl, death, six years. And I really believe, I really believe it came back to the inability of me stepping in when the doctor said, take this Adderall pill. And I should have known better because I grew up with attention deficit and I didn't step in. I don't regret a lot with my son's death in regards to guilt, but I do feel guilty that I didn't step in as a parent. And so when I talk, Frank, you're exactly right. I talk to parents, you know what? You don't have to believe that diagnosis. You can get a second opinion. Uh, you don't have to take a medicine that the doctor prescribes you. And I'm not telling kids to get off Adderall because I'm not a doctor. Um, but at least understand what it is. It's essentially watered down methamphetamines. Um, and if we understood that in, in that context, maybe parents wouldn't be so likely to just pop them like, like Skittles. And actually today, Adderall is prescribed more to adults, Frank, than, than kids. Yes. And I, the, a gentleman I worked with on the ships, cause I do comedy on cruise ships. He had been, mm -hmm. a, he was a musical director for these, these on the ships, they have the dueling pianos and right. he was the talent coordinator and he would go on the ship and he would review them. And, but he was a high school music teacher for a while. He taught band and he said, Frank, I got to tell you, my best students were the kids with ADD. Mm -hmm. And he said, I realized that in the first 10 minutes of our hour, our 50 minute hour together, they would improve. And the next 40 minutes, nothing. Because they're just yeah. trying to spend their energy to sit still. They're bored. Yeah. So I, he said, on a whim, I bought an egg timer. And he said to the kid, look, I'm going to set the timer for 10 minutes. We're going to practice your scale for 10 minutes, scales for 10 minutes. When the egg timer goes off, we're going to practice your breathing for 10 minutes. And when the egg timer mm -hmm. goes off, we're going to mm -hmm. practice those two pieces you're doing at the concert this weekend for two minutes. And then we're going to start all over again. I like and it. he said the improvement in that 50 minutes was phenomenal because they weren't just trying. And I said yep. in my talk on, on the TED, I said, look, maybe we should make the individual education plan truly individual, not just the curriculum, the teaching methods as well. 
you know, and, and but the curriculum as well. If you have a child with dyslexia, the STEM program is a living nightmare because it's nothing but letters and numbers on pages rolling around. They need to be in the humanities. They need to be solving. Yeah, they're, they're done right from the get go. Yeah. They need to be solving yeah. multi-level complex problems that they're so good at. I mean, mm-hmm. I was talking to a guy on the ship who someone's dyslexic. And I said, do you know that their dyslexia comes with some superpower? He goes, well, tell me. I said, well, they usually have better peripheral vision than the average person. And they yeah. also have the amazing ability to pick out the anomaly in just about anything. And the joke I wrote was never play Where's Waldo with a child who's dyslexic for money because you're going to lose. They're going yeah. to go right to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the way you're reframing it, man. The Stoics practice reframing, which is something that's helped me deal with the death of a son and my wife, is how I look at death as an opportunity instead of a curse or a punishment to me. And when I talk to people publicly, I always end my presentations with this sentence. And I think you can certainly relate to this. Do things happen to you or do things happen for you? And if your mindset isn't through your life, that things happen to you. Like I I have attention deficit. This is a, a curse. It happened to me. Why didn't it happen to that? My friend, instead of saying it happened for me, this is something I have that he can't even buy. And if he did, it's probably illegal. This is in my bloodstream. How lucky yeah. am I? And we don't tell kids that today, Frank. We we tell them, you know what? Uh, you, you're not doing good at school because you can't pass a standardized test. And I could I could never remember graphs and charts and pictures. My brain just I still can't. I, I can't spell. Um, I, I just uh, I can't add. I'm not good at math. And it wasn't just because I'm 56 and I forgot. I, I never was good at that stuff. But you give me other skills that involved, you know, uh, sports. I was good at. Uh, for some reason, uh, kids in a, with attention deficit can, can be fairly good at sports when they hyper focus on things. Um, well, you know, and I met a, I met a guy at one of my suicide prevention speeches whose son Mason is on the spectrum. And I said, mm-hmm. well, just out of curiosity, does Mason have any amazing abilities? He's an amazing athlete. We joined a swim club in two weeks. He taught himself to swim the Australian crawl and breathe on both sides. Now I amazing? taught myself as an adult to breathe on both sides, but it took a month of daily laps to make that work out. I said, what about on land? Because he's lightning fast. He said, we're at Special Olympics. All the kids are lined up to do the 100-yard dash. Well, the starter's pistol goes off. Everybody takes off except Mason, because Mason has no idea why a gun went off. So he said, I felt like kind of like um, uh, Forrest Gump. Run, Mason, run. Right, so Mason goes, right. oh, run. And he caught the kids and won the race. I mean, mm. I said, do you understand the power of embracing, energizing, and celebrating? Yeah. I said, you know, yeah. where you are picked in the lineup to play Sandlot football will have an impact on your later life. And I get to see two kids in my head are team captains. And one captain says to whoever's helping him pick, take Mason. You mean the weird kid? Oh, oh, brother. He is... He's fast as lightning, and I swear to God, his hands have glue on him. So, he, you know, so he's picked first, which can make yeah, sure. a huge difference in a child's life down the oh. down the road. I, Most I people realized, don't understand that, but that's so true. That's so true. Years ago, I realized, I used to say I fight depression, and I realized I can't, I, it's a misnomer. I can't fight it. Fight implies I can win, and I can't. I can lose and kill myself or tie, like, you know, kind of an uneasy truce like North and South Korea. So I take an Aikido approach. Aikido is a martial art where rather than oppose your opponent's energy, you blend with it. 
you step mm-hmm. offline and you grab them and you spin in a circle, take their take their balance and then re- reverse the circle and lower them to the ground. Nobody gets hurt. But the whole idea is blending. So mm-hmm. when I have my three day major depressive disorder, you know, cycle, I, I call it. I just I said I just surf the crazy. I get on the board, I catch the wave and I, and three days later it breaks and I'm done. So I don't, I don't try to push back because it, A, it's not going to work and B, it takes up so much energy to oppose it. Yeah, I, I don't meet many people with this perspective, Frank. I really don't. I've been doing the show two years. I've got lots of guests on and I don't meet too many that really embody the same belief structure for me. Like I was trying to paint this picture to someone the other day. I said, you know, in this profession of mental health, what we do is this, you have depression. All right. And depression is this, this thing over here in the corner and some kids walk by and depression doesn't jump on their back, but you walk by, it jumps on your back all the time. Right. And that's what we think is it's, it's, it's away from us. And, and, and the thing is, is it's not, it's a process. Depression doesn't exist by itself in a box yeah. depression it it doesn't i mean you can't go out and buy depression you can't sell it it's you can't even remove it. it it and that's the problem is i think our industry says well let's eradicate your depression let's let's fight your alcoholism let's and i'm like you know what addiction that's just part of being human depression is just having a bad moment is just part of being human in my book i write a chapter called the evolution of self and you've said the word evolution a couple times I firmly believe that is that how we can get through these tough times isn't trying to eradicate suffering, isn't trying to fight pain or, or paddle against stream up, up current. We need to lean into it. And I, I call it a mental health workout. When I have that feeling in my, it's like when I talk to kids, I say, when's the last time you cried and felt worse? When's the last time you went to the gym and worked out and felt worse? But every time before you cry, before you go work out, you don't really feel like this is what you want to do, but every time you feel better. So next time you have some, something come suffering down, you know, getting down, depressed, sad, pain, whatever, instead of trying to fight it, like you just said so eloquently, Frank, lean into it. It's part of you. It's a process. It's not, yeah. you can't put it in a box. You can't take a pill and have a go away. Our medical facility uh, uh, industry thinks that that's what we can do. We can diagnose i.e. it's not part of you. It's something away from you. We'll give it a pill. We'll keep it at bay. That's a broken system, man. If that was working, then we wouldn't have 800 Americans dying from alcohol, suicide, and overdose. Well, and three things on that score. A day. One is that um, I did another TED Talk called Depressive Realism. Maybe the glass really is half empty. And there is some science, not a lot yet, but the people with depression see the world more accurately and anticipate outcomes more accurately than people who are neurotypical and have a positive cognitive bias. Mm. And they, there is some, and again, the, the point of it was to, to put a positive spin on depression as an ability, not, you know, your other ables. you have depression. And I also believe that people with depression are far more empathetic. They feel others pain more acutely, um, which yeah. I think is a, you know, is a superpower. Uh, secondly, I was driving one day and thought, what if somebody came to you and said, I've got a pill, one dose, one time, no ugly side effects. You'll never have, you'll never be depressed again. You'll never have another suicidal thought. The only real side effect is going to be that you're no longer going to think, process information the way a comedian processes information. And I said, I wouldn't take the pill. 
Give it to somebody who's suffering far more. Because, because again, I believe there's a reason when somebody heckles and I fire back and the audience says to me, how'd you think that up? And I tell them the truth. I didn't think it. I have no idea where it came from. When you heard it for the first time, I was hearing it for the first time. It's just the way my brain processes stuff. Right. Uh, again, I believe it is a, you know, a, well, and Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath, talks about uh, dyslexia and things, similar things. And he, he calls it a desirable disadvantage. You would never wish it on anyone, but it comes with certain advantages. And so he's taken the, you know, similar tack that, you know, these things are normally disadvantages, but it does come with advantages as well. Uh, there's a book called The Bipolar Advantage and about people through history, famous people who they believe have had bipolar disorder. And the first one is Alexander Hamilton. Based on the historical record of his behavior, I do believe he was, but amazingly productive when he was in a hypomanic state, you know, stayed up for days and then crashed and burned. Yeah. I, I heard yeah, that about Ben Franklin, I think. Yes, Ben Franklin. And, you know, I yep. saw a 60 Minutes episode after I did my Mental with Benefits TED Talk. Two years later, I saw a 60 Minutes episode where they said, you know, 30 Fortune 500 companies are now hiring people on the spectrum for their one singular skill. I'm thinking, where have you guys oh, been? Oh, really? <laughs> That's right. I was talking about that two years ago. Uh, Isn't Elon Musk on the spectrum? I would imagine, yes. And Bill Gates has dyslexia. And I mean, it goes on. Yeah. I, I, in my right. talk, there's a laundry list of, you know, famous, infamous, rich, you know, accomplished mm -hmm. people who, who have these, you know, these, yeah, I mean, the the way my brain works it's just i mean it i so don't why mean to is brag, society but... so late what why is society so late to adapt to this mindset that you and i seem to have and a lot of people have where we're our ability to look at these things from a different lens and why is society so quick to just um make this so difficult for people when it really probably shouldn't be that difficult yes because they have a mental image of what what mental illness looks and sounds like hmm. uh the back to your question about you know the, the darkest moments becoming comedy i taught a comedy class called um uh mental mental health anyway it was it was um mental health it was comedy and you had to have a mental health diagnosis and yet to, to be in it and stand up for mental health and you had to have a diagnosis to teach it so there were no no oh, neurotypicals in the room so it was part comedy class, part group, you know, group uh, <laughs> therapy class. And they were, bar none, the funniest. I bet. On the fly. I mean, the stuff that came out of their mouths, I go, well, um, Leanne, what do you got for me today? She goes, well, I just came from an AA meeting. She was double diagnosed. Uh, what do you got? She goes, well, the speaker, he talked about Columbus. And I think, I think Columbus was an alcoholic. I go, well, and then bear in mind, she wrote this bit from the, from the time she left AA to the time she got to our class. She goes, oh, well, why do you think he's an alcoholic? Well, think about this. His big plan was uh, sail west to get east. I mean, doesn't that sound like something somebody would come up with in a bar? <laughs> and then he did it. And when he got to where he's going, he had no idea where he was. And when he got home, Just he like couldn't tell anybody where he'd been. And this is my favorite part. She goes, and he got a woman 
to finance it twice. That's brilliant. In in the span of time between her AA meeting and income, um, there's another one. Um, That's brilliant. Young woman said, my boyfriend wants to break up with me. And I said, why is that? Well, he says he wants to see other people. And I said, what did you tell him? She goes, I'm bipolar. Give me a minute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, here's my favorite. And it's really dark. But again, it was just, you know, when a comedian, you know, neurotypical writes a joke, it's usually a page. And I got to go through and redact everything that doesn't move the narrative forward. These kids, it came out of their mouth this way. Camille, and she had a horrible story. I mean, she, her dad sold her into, you know, sexual slavery at eight. And I mean, it was just... Mm. I go, Camille, what you got? She goes, well, I went to my psychiatrist. Yeah, and what happened? Well, um, he asked me if I was depressed. And I said, yes. And he asked me if I was having thoughts of suicide. I said, yes. And he asked me if I had a plan. And I said, I have five plans. And he said, five plans? And she goes, yeah. Do you want to hear them all or just the ones that involve you? And it gave me chills. It's so dark <laughs> and so funny. And it, that's the way it came out of her brain. And that's probably how she really was thinking too. Oh yeah. I mean, that's exactly, yeah. she probably had that thought. Um, and so any, again, I do believe, and what I loved about those kids was they took flashlights and they shined it into the darkest corners of their psyche to bring these, and they'll get on stage. Now think about this. One of people's greatest fears is public speaking. So imagine getting on stage, having a mental illness and publicly speaking about something that is amazingly stigmatized. And that's why the guy created the program was to change people's perception of what mental illness looks and sounds like. You change perception, you can change prejudices, change prejudices, yep. you can save lives. So let me ask you a question going back a little bit about you and your childhood. Um, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate says, and he has a new book out, I think it just came out this week um, about addiction. And he, he claims that all addictions come from childhood trauma. Uh, I was an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler, but I grew up in leave it to beaver household. Literally. I mean, no childhood trauma. I mean, I'm talking zero dude, zero. Uh, I was just bored. I grew up in Iowa. We tipped over cows and got drunk. That's what we did, you know? And so my, my descent into hell came from exploration, not escaping. Where would you say you're, uh, issues stemmed from, uh, you don't have to be real intimate in the personal, but you know, was it, was it a childhood traumatic event or were you one of the ones like myself where it was more just exploration or, uh, did you ever have addiction problems with substance abuse issues? So what you're asking me is, did I, did I like you score a zero on the ACE test? <laughs> I did get a zero on almost most of my tests. I never made one honor roll in my life. Yeah. Well, that, that's one you don't want to score a 10 on. Um, although I have a friend who has a nine, you know what the ACE is? Uh, no, so, I don't, but oh, I, yeah. uh, I don't it's know. something about child. It's a, it's a, it's a yardstick of childhood trauma. Okay. And, and, you know, one is your parent, one of your parents is an alcoholic Two, um, you know, sexual trauma. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Um, I can never remember what ACE stands for childhood, something adverse childhood experiences. Gotcha. Um, I've never heard of that. Never heard yeah, of it. Yeah. Look it up. It's and like I said, I got a friend who's got nine, nine on oh, the ACE. Yeah. Uh, the only thing she didn't have was that she never she, went on. Is she a comedian? Uh, no speaker. Um, oh, okay. And very talented. With, that, with a nine, you got a hell of a, probably a lot of things you can make light of with a nine. Oh, yes. And her family is just a piece of work. But anyway, 
I bet. Uh, to answer your question, um, yes and no. The the I did have childhood trauma, which I'll tell you about in a second. But my family has something called generational depression and suicide. Okay. And I've got a friend who's a clinician, a cl- uh, you know, counselor who has a family that goes back five generations. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. Here's where the trauma comes in. Um, my mom and I went over to my great aunt's house, and I'm going to warn your audience. Uh, trigger warning. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a trigger warning on the show as yeah. well. So that this, yeah, if you're easily, you know, so you might want to put it on mute for 90 seconds. Um, my mother and I went to my great aunt's house and we let ourselves in because my, after my grandmother died and they were, you know, it's a great aunt. So they're very close. And about that age in my family where people start winding down mentally, the, uh, nothing out of place until we got to the kitchen and everything that should have been on the, in the refrigerator, milk, butter, eggs, cheese are on the counter and the refrigerator. You may be old enough to remember these didn't have a magnetic seal. It had a uh, latch. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Back in the day, they used to take the doors off all old refrigerators. They're afraid kids would crawl in and then pull the door to it. I remember. Yep. Yep. So my great aunt had crawled in to die by suicide, pulled the door to behind her, click. And as it turns out, at some point, changed her mind and tried to call her way out. So my mother, not realizing what happened, walks over to the refrigerator. I'm holding onto her skirt tail. She swings the door open. And my great aunt falls out of the refrigerator and pins me to the floor. So we're face to face and our face is frozen that last moment of horror. Now, the good news is I didn't remember that. It was walled off in my, I screamed for days apparently. It was walled off in my brain somewhere until 2012. Because my mother and her and that generation came up with a myth. If I ever ask about it, they were to tell me that when my mother opened the door, my great aunt was sitting there in the refrigerator with her hands folded in prayer, looking very serene. When I told my cousin that, who's 10 years older, he said, serene my ass. <laughs> the old bat fell out and pinned you to the floor and it all came back. Oh my God. Which was my, which was the beginning. How old were you? When, when it came back. Came back. Uh, 2012. So I was 55. Oh, so shit, you're my age. Yeah. yeah, so I'm 65 now. So, and I'd already in 2010 come close to killing myself. Because, you know, if you're that close to an actual suicide Jeez. and you're already hardwired for it, then there, there ups the chances at some point you'll seriously consider taking your life. So, but it, it pushed me farther toward this is what I'm going to speak on. Because yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to, as tough as it is. I, I understand triggering, man, but I tell you what, if we want to get these things fixed, dance on eggshells isn't going to work. Um, you know, I, I, um, I admire you telling the story and I, I, I wish people that are having these issues could hear stories like this and not, not get triggered. But I know that we're so sensitive now that we have trigger warnings on everything. You know, it's like when I was a kid, I'm into heavy metal music really heavy. And when I was a kid, they put the warning labels on albums, right? What happened to sales, man? Yeah. I mean, Dean, D Snyder knew this at twisted sister. He's like, you know, Tipper Gore, you're, you're crazy because when you put these labels on sales went through the roof. Well, I sometimes think with trigger warnings, it almost makes the same, it could have the same effect that people that are actually triggerable may actually see the video to see if it's triggerable. You follow me on that? 
I was on campus at the University of Montana Billings, and uh, it was going to be open to the public, but it was a college event. So I'm touring radio stations to hopefully draw some of the public into the event, Suicide Prevention. And the two nice young men who were showing me around town said, Frank, you're a comic. Aren't you worried about coming on campus and offending somebody? I said, look, if I was a comedian, I'd be very careful not to offend anybody. But I'm on campus. Three college students a day, every day, kill themselves. I'm on campus to save lives. So I don't care if I offend you or trigger you or step on your toes. I, I use some stronger language than that. Yeah, I bet. I don't <laughs> give up because yeah. that's not why I'm here. Yeah, I mean, it's, right. you know, so it's, yes. Yeah, uh, but I think the more we talk about it out loud, well, when I tell the audience that I have major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation, chronic suicidal ideation means, and some of your listeners may have heard of this, some not, Mm-hmm. Um, that for people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I tell the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. And the mm-hmm. upside of telling that story is. You say, <laughs> say that you say that in a way that is so different than what most, because you almost say it comedically. Yes. Oh, no, you do say it. You do say it comedically. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it works because. I don't, it's hard to explain. I, I, I mean, you, you just, the way you said that so easy off your tongue there and so honest and genuine, but there was a little hint, a little sprinkle of humor. Yes. It almost, it almost, it almost, not almost, it certainly helps. Yeah. It helps tell the story. hundred percent. It helps. I tell the audience, I know that sounds absurd, but get this. I tell them every time I've spoken since 2014, for the most part, every time there's been somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation. Invariably, they do not know it has a name. They don't know it's a thing. They think they're just- I never some... heard of it before either. Never yeah, heard and of many it. clinicians never have because it's not the DSM yet. Um, okay. You know, they think that the person who has it, you know, when I mention it, they, they think they've never heard it. They don't know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. A young woman came up to me after a college show and said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, I got to tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She said, you know, your story about the car, get it fixed by a new and kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I had no idea that it had a name. I thought I was just some kind of wow. freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone. And I wept. Mm. That's the power of starting the conversation. So how has whole this whole journey been for you personally? Um, the ability to be able to do what you do has to be therapy for you, therapeutic for oh, you. Oh, yes. People ask me, does it trigger you to tell your story? No, it's because of people like that young woman. Um, right. I did a thing for a construction company in Cincinnati last month, and there's a on-site, did four keynotes in a day, different site, every keynote, construction site. <clears throat> the last one, 180 construction workers, mostly men, and there were four or five people lined up because I said, we'll do some general Q&A, and if you have individual questions or a story to share, we'll do that. I'll hang out. Mm-hmm. Last guy up is a black guy, mid twenties, and I look up and he's crying. I mean, in front of all these other people. And mm-hmm. when he gathers himself, I said, "What's up?" And he said, "Well, I I can't sleep. I haven't slept for two days." He said, "I I work on the fifth floor of this building, and I think about jumping every day." And and I said, "Why?" 
And he said, well, because I've lost three people close to me in the last year to violence. One of them was my daughter who died in my arms. Mm. Now, this is something wow. he's never told anybody. And so I waved the HR guy over. And I said, listen, you need to take this gentleman by the hand to a mental health facility and get him evaluated and perhaps medicated because he's, he's circling the drain. And yeah. I called the meeting planner last week, hoping for the best, holding my breath. I said, how is it? Hoping for the best. She goes, Frank, you got evaluated, you got medicated, back on the job. That's great. My goal is to save a life a day. So that day, that was my, that was my guy. I, I think about that statement you just made. And the other day we had on our tour, we were driving around the country for 95 days and we went to a place in Boise, I think. And there was, we drove like nine hours, man. And the attendance was very low. There wasn't that many people there. Um, some events we had, you know, 100, 150 people. And it was really, you know, nice. And I pulled in there and there was like four people, you know, 100 chairs set up. You know, it just, it just didn't get marketed real well in that area. And uh, pulled up the chairs. We sat in a circle and we just talked. I, I canned my whole speech. I didn't do my PowerPoint. I just took a chair, turned it around, sat down and talked, you know. And... Um, I got to learn an important lesson about that humility, Frank, is that let's say I speak to four people and not one of them gets helped. Well, I'll be the one person that gets helped. Yes, I find it. So every time I talk, my default option, if I don't help anybody, my default, I know for a fact, I'm always going to help one person. And that one person sometimes is just me, you know? And so it was, it was a good lesson in humility there for me. Well, and I give you another lesson about chronic suicidal ideation. Uh, the, it actually helps keep me alive because there are three legs on the stool of suicidality, burdensomeness, social isolation, and you've made the decision you can take your life. I mean, hmm. it, babies are born with an amazing will to live, but you've already crossed that barrier. I've crossed that barrier. I can take my life at any time. And I believe that suicide is not about wanting to kill yourself. I think I said this, I think it's about ending the pain. And because I know that I'm in control and I can take my life at any moment, I can stand a great deal more pain. If it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I would have killed myself a long time ago. I love it, dude. I don't know what to tell you, man. You're a rare dog. You're a rare breed, man, that you have this insight that this, um, this wisdom that has come with, this fight you've been on for, it seems like your whole life. Uh, have you, have you had this, uh, suicidal ideation literally your whole life? No, I, I, I loved high school, almost stayed an extra year. Cause they let you do that back then. Take more Spanish, take typing, but I ended up going to college. Um, college, I was, uh, I was down in the dumps. I was probably depressed, but my girlfriend had gone across the country to college and I was just, you know, but not suicidal ideation yet. No. My first suicidal ideation was uh, in January of 1984. I was driving down Highway 163 South in San Diego about five in the afternoon. I married my high school sweetheart, a wonderful woman, but we had no business being together and nothing in common. Mm -hmm. And I was working for her, the insurance company her father helped me get a job with, his company. And insurance is a great business, but I hated it. And I was not going to open mic night to be a comedian, which is where I thought, where I knew I belonged. Mm -hmm. And the thought popped into my head, just kill yourself. Wow. Just, just the first time that's ever popped into your head. Yeah. A friend of mine said, it's like one of those planes that's flying amazing. over the banner behind it. This says, why don't you just kill yourself? 
Uh, I mean, that's just absolutely, that's stunning revelation there that you hadn't had this slowly, like, but that's scary. That's actually terrifying. Yeah. I came to that intersection where I realized that if I didn't pursue comedy, which I believe I was born to, that I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. My second thought was terribly empowering. I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I can always kill myself. <laughs> and and oh, so think about man. this. Who what is more powerful? Uh, that's this- always your back that's always your last plan, right? Yeah. And, and what's more powerful on this planet than somebody like me in that situation who has absolutely nothing to lose by pursuing comedy? Because if I stayed put, I was dead. It's like standing on a cliff and there's a wildfire coming up behind you and then maybe 10 stories. So, Go ahead. I just know of so many advocates that if they watch this show, you can laugh about it, but I know so many advocates that, uh, especially if their parents have lost, they, they, they'd find no comedy in this. And I'm almost like, hey, man, how do you, how do you bridge that? How, or do you bridge it? Do you even want to, do you want to try to get someone who's lost a loved one to suicide? to try to look at things, not, not in a humorous way. Cause that, that may just be too much to ask, but no. I, I don't know. Help me through this. I'm really struggling. Cause I, I've got some tremendous friends of mine that have lost children. And, and, you know, my, my death was by, you know, it wasn't, it was suicide by drugs. Almost. Uh, he was trying to avoid pain. I'm sure by doing drugs. Yeah. So my I'm wife, certainly, my wife certainly was literally drank herself to death. Um, so in a way that was, that was kind of an indirect suicide as well. Uh, you, you could say that, I guess. Um, how do you talk to that mom or dad out there in the audience that just had lost a loved one and you're trying to crack a joke or something? I mean, how does that go down? Well, if you notice, uh, I don't, it's not, I don't joke about it. Um, yeah, I, I said that wrong. I know what you mean. Yeah, I tell funny, you, pers- you lighten the situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always funny, personal stories. Um, gotcha. so anecdotes and, right. and as a comedian, the rule is you can make fun of any group to which you belong. And uh, yep, I like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. so, and because I, because I come right out with my story about having a gun in my mouth and, you know, somebody said to me, what did it taste like? And I said, relief. I mean, you can almost feel people tear up. I think it's my personal experience. The fact that I came that close that, you know, the gun in my mouth, the hammer back, just practicing. So I know I could do it if I had to. And the fact that I've lived with this depression all my life. Um, so you, again, you know, that it's all about timing and placing the humor in the right spots. Yeah. I um, get it. I'm doing my TEDx. And after I told the story about my grandmother dying with a gas stove and my great aunt dying with a refrigerator, I said, what is it with my family and major appliances? I drive by Sears, I tear up. So it's about me. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I can, I can laugh at that, but, but, I can certainly see where, um, yeah, I think you, I think that's, it's, it's, I think it's admirable that you have the courage to tell your story in that context, knowing that at any given moment, someone in the audience may just absolutely not see it that way. And, and you, I'm sure you were prepared. I'm sure you prepared professionally to handle somebody that says, you don't understand it. My son just died. I mean, all of a sudden you you hear that, you hear that quietness in the audience. Has that something like that ever happened? No, never in a, in a, in a uh, speech, but I was no, at a no, networking, no, no. networking event in Vegas with a bunch of other speakers. 
And because I speak so frankly and openly and, you know, occasionally right. um, humorously, there was yeah. a woman there who had lost a child. Yeah. And she ended up running out of the room. Mm. It was just too much. My my frankness, pardon the pun, was just too much for her. Too close. Did that affect you? Did it affect you? No, it affected me because I was I was crushed because I had I had hurt her. And so yeah. I immediately, you know, I I I said I couldn't find her, but I said to the guy who organized the event, listen, when you speak to her, please tell her that I am sorry. I did that was the last thing I meant to do. It's just it's just my style and I do it right. I do it with the audience because because nobody speaks about it out loud and I wanna be I want I want to normalize the conversation, not the act. Yeah. And you're, inevitably, you're inevitably mathematically for every, you know, 95 that, that hear your story in a comedic environment, walk out of there elevated. They feel like, you know, I, they have a new perspective on this whole suicide thing. You're going to have five people out of that hundred are going to just, no matter what you say in any context mm -hmm. with suicide, they're not going to take it in any way constructive. Um, no. and, and again, and that's how each people, each person has their own unique ability. Yeah. I can, I can actually, someone once said, uh, Jeff, you always talk about moving the needle. Didn't your son die by needle? Oh yeah. I get, I get, it doesn't uh, bother me. I know. It no, doesn't bother me. I love that. And metaphorically, metaphorically, maybe there is a subconscious reason why I say that phrase a lot. I never thought about that. I say moving the needle. And, and, and now every time I say that, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't say that, you know, but I guess for me, it works. Well, and every now and then I'm talking to a meeting planner. She knows I put a gun in my mouth. I'm going up to speak in Portland for NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness. And I said, what do you mean? What do you mean to cover in my keynote? She goes, I don't know, Frank, just give me a couple of bullet points. And I let that hang in the air. <laughs> And and oh, and I gave man. her just enough time to oh, go. Oh, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, so God. You just, you just stood there and looked at her. Okay, do you get what you just said? <laughs> yeah, and she's just I can't believe we're laughing about this, man. I mean, yeah. and I tell you what, I just feel good. I feel good like I want to go talk to people about all these issues, you know? And I tell you what, screw it sometimes. It's like, you know, we were so clinical, we're so careful, we're so scripted in how we present things so we don't hurt people's feelings. And it's like, I've lost two loved ones to this shit, to mental health, to alcohol and drug overdose. Could have well just as been suicide for both of them. Yeah. Very likely both of them probably had high suicidal thoughts um, and they died by drugs and alcohol. So I feel like you, I have a dog in the hunt. I'm allowed to laugh. I'm allowed yeah. to cry. I'm, a, I'm allowed to make light of the situation because God dang it. I, I've, I know exactly what it's like to be on that side of the fence. I had suicidal ideation eight months ago, man. Eight months ago over Christmas, my mom died. My, my wife died in um, June of 2021. And my, um, so my wife's <coughs> one year anniversary just came up of her death. And my mom died in October and over Christmas. Uh, so what, 10 months ago, uh, I had suicidal ideation. First time in my entire life after burying two loved ones. And I talk about it at, at length uh, at, my, at my, uh, my presentations. And I'm Mr. Undeterred, man. How in the hell I had, I, and it's the most terrifying thought I've ever had in my life. I've never had it before and haven't had it since. And it came out of nowhere. Like you talked about it. Just, I just sat there thinking seven seconds. I can get to my safe and get my gun. What? What? Like, there you go. Who said that? <laughs> who the hell said that? You know, what insane person just said, I thought maybe somebody whispered in my ear and then I realized, no, that's, that's me. What the F?
you know, and dude, that was, that wasn't that long ago. I was, I, my podcast is two years old. So this is after I've been doing my podcast and it's that, that was terrifying, Frank. It was absolutely, you know, spine tingling, terrifying. And Mr. Living Undeterred, advocate of mental health, uh, the warrior, the mental health warrior. I was seconds away from actually considering. Now, I didn't have a plan drug out. I just knew that I know my combination takes me eight seconds. Yeah. I don't want to live. Dude, I tell you, man. And you know what? You can relate to this, Frank. I was the loneliest human being on the planet. But if you would have called me, I wouldn't have answered the phone. Oh, yeah. Uh, eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent. On average, nine out of 10 give hints. When I was going to do it, I was one of the two out of 10 that was not ambivalent. And I was the one out of 10 that wasn't going to tell anybody. Uh, mm -hmm. I was just going to do it because I, I, I had a million dollar life insurance policy. I was going to restore my wife financially. Uh, you know, that burdensomeness. I was a burden. I was worth more dead than alive. I could fix the bankruptcy. She'd be heartbroken, but she wouldn't be broke. She'd have a million dollars. But do you know what saved my life? Because people ask me, well, why didn't you pull the trigger? Um, my response usually is try to sound not quite so disappointed. Um, again, See, I knew you'd have a humor. See, I'm thinking to myself, do you want to know what I, what I said? Well, let me guess. You said something humorous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I had, sold, I had sold insurance right out yeah. of college from my father-in-law's company. I knew my, my life insurance had a two-year suicide clause. Intestability clause. I sold insurance too. Yep. Yeah, I used to call my agent. I said, I just, yeah. and just in passing, I just said, how long have I had the policy? Cause I don't know. Check comes back on the phone and he goes 22 months. And then it hit him. He goes and don't do it. Cause he delivered wow. checks. And later on the 25th month, he probably delivered checks. Yep, exactly. Uh, I had, I had to wait 60 days to kill myself. So, unfortunately, by day 61, the bankruptcy gone through, phone call stopped, things must have gotten a little better because I wasn't marking days off the calendar. Uh, but when I called him right before the TED Talk posted, because I mentioned him in the TED Talk, and I said, look, Graham, I mentioned him in the TED Talk. Uh, he said, yeah, Frank, when I hung up the phone, I told my wife, I think he's going to kill himself. He said, when I realized what you were asking, not how long you'd had the policy, but for permission to kill yourself, he said, I just said a quick prayer. And hope whatever I said next made a difference. And I said, Graham, it's not so important what you said next. <clears throat> it's the fact you said something. Mm. That you cared enough to step outside your comfort zone and say something. Right. Yeah. So it, that's why I'm here. Is because my, my insurance would be paid up. I'd be long gone. So my life insurance policy, ironically, saved my life. So... Isn't that funny how life works out? Hey, let me, let me ask you a question. If you could be king for a day, we have this, you know, generation of, of just helpless people, just hopeless people, especially kids today. You know, adolescents are really struggling with their mental health. Um, and I saw a statistic that I think last year, the highest year over year percentage, not in numbers, but in percentage of suicide was white middle-aged men. Me and you, dude. Um, eight out of 10. I saw that. So eight out of let 10. me ask you this question. What do you say to that person? Um, what do you say? What does Frank King say to that person that, that is really struggling right now? That's having, whether it's every day or just the first time, like I had over Christmas, what do you say to that person? 
Oh, well, flat out. Uh, are you are you having thoughts of suicide? Just confirm that. Yes. Uh, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed time, place, and method, I'd do my best to get them to a mental health facility simply for evaluation. Sure. And perhaps medication. And if the medication doesn't work or doesn't work well, there's now a DNA cheek swab test where they take your DNA and they try to match it to the psychotropic that would work best with your metabolism. So it cuts down on a really? lot of the, Yeah. I've never heard this. It's yeah, nobody has. <laughs> it's been around. I've learned a lot. Of, I've learned like four different things from you today. <laughs> yeah. Look, if you type in depression, DNA, cheek swab test, uh, drugs, I will. you'll find half a dozen companies that do it a couple hundred bucks and it helps to cut down on the, you know, go on the drug. It doesn't work. Taper off, go on the drug. Doesn't work. Taper off. It's not perfect, but it's, you're dialing it in. Better than nothing. Well, cause oftentimes the doctor only knows what the drug salesman told him. So, yeah. um, I would say, you know, in, I would call if, if I would, if they wouldn't go into a mental health facility, I would say, look, pull out your phone and dial 988. Or if they were a young person, I would say, pull out your phone and text the word help to 741741, which is the text line, which most millennials and Gen Z are more comfortable on text. That's why they created it. If right. they won't pick up the phone, I'd pick up the phone, call 988 and describe to the volunteer what was going on. And the volunteer will undoubtedly do what they can to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. If they're in immediate danger to themselves or others, I, I wouldn't hesitate to call 911. And of course that could end up being, you know, uh, buy them a three day involuntary detention. Um, but you know, they'd unfriend me on Facebook, but they'd still be alive. Uh, the step that I have yet, I've taken a number of classes, um, mental health first aid, uh, QPR, assist, uh, not once has anybody taken it a step farther. And a psychiatrist and I, he has major depression, he has a chronic suicidal ideation, we were chatting one day. I go, well, what if, it, what if they're suicidal, but the plan's not really well formed? Like if you said to me, I have a gun in the safe, I know how long it would take me to yeah. open it. and. So it's not really a well-formed plan. Right. That was me. It was spontaneous. Yeah. So what I would have said to you at that moment was, and he and I just made this up. I would have said, okay, Jeff, um, are you going to kill yourself? And if you said no, I would Probably say. not. Okay. I would say, Jeff, tell me why not. Make them give voice to, what, make, voice. to whatever's keeping you here. Friends, family, children, religion, yep. whatever. Something's keeping you here. Yep. In, right. in suicide prevention training, they call that a turning point. If you can get them to give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here, you can leverage that. Then I would say, well, listen, would you mind if you and I created a plan to keep you to keep you safe just for today? Because hmm. yeah. most times when people are depressed, they're only thinking in the immediate. You know, it's it's, it's not going to ever get any better than this. You know, they're not really thinking down the road that you know the sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Hard to do if you're hanging from your belt. Trust me. Um, again, there's yeah. that sort of dark, you know. Listen, yeah. I tell you what, Frank, I, I've been doing this two years. and I've talked to a lot of people. This is like the most amazing podcast I've ever done. And oh. I, I say this not be, I say this for this reason that we never got to anything else about you. Um, you know, about the tonight show, about some other things that, that you have, that you have in your, your history, but the fact that we just kind of naturally gravitated to this, this issue. And I don't even have suicide in my family. Um, uh, deaths in my family have been old age and overdose and alcohol, 
but there's an underlying or an overpinning of mental health that's that's over there and mental health is the wheel suicide depression alcohol drugs those are all spokes of the wheel and i know somebody sees your bio and i'm just going to make this up this isn't your bio comedian it talks about suicide. They're going to say, ah, now wait, that's like a, that's like a, a drunk driver, Uber driver. I mean, yeah. it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but once people get to know you, they see honest tears of passion. They, they hear the crackle in your voice. You can't fake that man. And you have this tremendous passion to keep people alive by yeah. using comedy as a tool. And you know what? I guarantee you, I'm going to have somebody watch this podcast that's going to say, Jeff, you know what? I don't see how you can make any light in this serious issue. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe that's the way we need to be looking at some of these things because the way we're doing it as a serious issue isn't working. So why not try some other options? And isn't the objective to keep somebody alive, not to keep the pundits happy or not to keep the critics happy, keep keeping people alive, you know? And I, I, I run into this too, a lot on some of my different, I tend to think that most of this is more choice and not disease related. I run into the people that are all disease, you know, like the AA people, you know, give yourself up to higher power and all that. It's like, you know, you don't have a choice. You have a disease. You have to give it up to somebody else. It's like, Mm, you know, if that was true and that's the way we're doing it, then wouldn't the numbers start going in the other direction? The problem is they're not. So we need to look at these things from different perspectives and maybe just maybe adding a touch of humor and civility on some of these really sensitive topics. Yeah. And what harm is it going to do? And people have, as I mentioned earlier, a, a perception, a, an idea what uh, mental illness looks and sounds like. They think of the guy on the corner with a sign will work for food. That is what I call stage four mental illness. The system has failed them right. all the way down. Right. They see a guy on stage, wrote jokes with Leno for 20 years, been a stand-up comedy full-time for 37. Um, and he's up there, obviously, you know, high-functioning. And it it's like it's cognitive dissonance. You can't hold the guy with the sign on the corner in your brain the same time you're watching me. And I have similar illnesses. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully we can change perception, which can change prejudice, which can, you know, can hopefully keep more people alive. And that that's really all I'm after is, is keeping people, I mean, may step on some toes. Somebody may get offended that I made a joke about, not joke, but told a funny story about, you know, but compare that to the number of people many of whom I imagine I'll never meet who I helped in some way. That's why I don't kill myself. One of the reasons, Jeff, mm. is because, because somebody said to me, why? Why don't you kill yourself? Well, I feel like um, George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. If I've been shown what people's lives might be like, if I weren't there to simply reassure them that they are, in fact, not alone. But perhaps they have, you know, they have a, a mental disability, but they may have some extraordinary abilities that they aren't aware of that they need to right. explore and celebrate. And if I kill myself, then conceivably I could take a lot of those people with me. Yeah. Collateral damage on this is huge. And it came from a friend of mine whose father was in AA for 20 years. He hmm. gave me the idea because his dad sponsored untold numbers of people. 
And he asked his dad one day after 20 years in AA, was he going to drink again? And he says, no, I'm not going to drink again. And he said, how do you know that? He said, because of all the people I've sponsored and all the people I will sponsor, if I dove back into that bottle, they would dive in right after me. Hmm. So that's why, just, one of the reasons I don't kill myself. Aren't the statistics of suicide, if someone does take their own life, that there's a high probability that someone in that immediate circle will, will may join them? More likely considered. Yeah, that's why yeah. I'm, a friend of mine is a mortician, a funeral director. And he said, Frank, when I hear them start talking, and by the way, they don't teach suicide prevention in mortuary colleges, which I think is ridiculous because you have people who've mm. lost someone. And I mean, they need, to Oh be, yeah, absolutely. They need to be able to pick up yeah. the signs and symptoms. Well, I never he thought about that. He knows he recognizes if somebody's depressed and, and they may say something, he recognizes that, you know, it's not an innocent comment that they may be thinking about suicide. So he goes, I always take suicide off the table. And I said, no, Jeff, don't take it off the table. Don't, don't take away their only out. Move it to one side. They need, I mean, <laughs> they need an option. You know, they can stand more pain if they, they know they've got an option. So don't take it off the table. Just put it to one side for the time being. Hmm. But That's interesting. So y you like are living proof that laughter really is the best medicine. Actually, actually I don't think so. Uh, I, God, I thought that sounded. I thought that sounded really good for what we're talking yeah, about. No copay. All right, tell me why I'm wrong. No copay, no deductible. Uh, no, it's because <laughs> people ask me if, if my humor is therapeutic for me. It's it's. I, I don't do it. You know, I don't do it for therapy. It but, comes naturally. Yeah, it's just the way my brain is wired. <laughs> yeah, they go. Which came first? Did you start doing the comedy? You know, to like soothe your soul or something? No, it's it's. They're both. You know, both part of me. And it's, I mean, humor can relieve stress, lower cortisol, mm, yeah, blood pressure. Really, I mean, there is a, yep. yeah, laughter yep. is a great thing, but it's, you know, it's, it's just, as you said, it's a device. It, it helps the dark and the dark and difficult subjects go down easier. I mean, if I were clinician. Well, I'm excited. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I, no, go ahead. I'm not a clinician. So if I were a clinician who right. didn't have any lived experience, I couldn't get away with, with 90% of what I say, you right. know, especially things that are humorous. But because I have lived experience, here's the thing, Jeff, a story about um, Tim Russert, formerly of the Meet the Press. He went yep. to work for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I believe, in Pennsylvania in his office in Moynihan's hometown. In Moynihan's center, he's in Washington. And Tim handled something really well one time, like a blizzard or something. And so Moynihan realized, talented kid, I'm going to move him to D.C. So he moved him in his office in D.C. And everybody else in Moynihan's office were Ivy Leaguers. You know, went, all went to Ivy League schools. And Tim, his father was a trash man, garbage man. Tim hauled garbage in the summertime. Went to state, you know, land-grant college in Pennsylvania somewhere. And he was feeling inferior. And so Moynihan took him aside and said, Tim, here's the deal. The way you grew up, the things you did. The things that those people who went to Ivy League colleges know, you can learn what you know, they, they will learn. never know. And the things that you and I know, Jeff, being lost survivors, steeped in this, we could go to school and become psychologists or psychiatrists. Right. We could learn everything that a clinician who is not 
who is neurotypical knows, but there's no way somebody who's a a psychologist, psychiatrist will ever know, could ever learn what you and I know. And I think that's the power of what we do. And that could be a reason why I've never seen a therapist because I'm not sure I could find one that can relate to what I've been through. So, you know, I'm not sure I could talk to somebody that when we're done talking, they go home to their family and they're happily married and they got their three kids and they make their dinner together and they go to the movie or I go home to my house by myself and I look at the urns up on my mantle. I'm not sure that I could find a therapist, but again, is that the purpose of finding a therapist is to find someone with a liked experience? I don't know. Well, there has been a, not a rule, but a, a, um, a norm in therapy for many years uh, that you don't share your personal mental health journey with your clients, which I think, yeah, I, I, I think that. that's wrong. I think, you know, you shouldn't overshare, but if it's a relatable, right. Um, and I know, I know, if you and I sat right now, like we're doing and like we're doing right now is more therapeutic for me than any hour I have with a therapist. I, I guarantee you that. Cause my, I, I don't have a guard up with you. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't have expectations. I didn't know what the hell to expect today. Um, I thought we were just going to talk about the tonight show and things like that. And, uh, boy, this has been great because if I go to a therapist, I already have expectations. I already have guards up. I'm already a little defensive, you know? I was, you kind of sidetracked me. You know, this has been very good for me today. Uh, I've benefited a lot. Got my, you got me thinking about, you know, some things and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous about some people watching this that I know that are, are the, uh, the suicide advocate moms and dads that have yeah. lost, that are out there beating the bushes. But you know what? My job as a host of this podcast is to bring in not necessarily an echo chamber, but bring in fresh perspectives on topics that are very complicated. And as I keep going back, uh, Frank, if, if what we were doing was working, I wouldn't even have a podcast, man. No, uh, I, I wouldn't be doing any of this. Um, my goal of the podcast is to bring in, I've had guys on psychedelic research. We've had brainwave technology. We've had ghost hunting. We've had, I mean, I've had every type of possible thing people could do to improve their mental health. Seriously. My brother's a professional ghost hunter. We talked about ghosts and Bigfoot and stuff, and it was one of my most watched podcasts and you know, whatever we can do to expand the scope of mental health that we can get people to not have, not to follow through that thought that I had about getting to my safe or the thought that you had, you know? Well, I had a, was a chamber of commerce meeting one time and I spoke and they introduced me as the mental health comedian, but I was speaking on something else. But one of the guys in the audience came up after and said, what's a mental health comedian? I said, well, I speak on, you know, suicide prevention, mental health awareness. And he said, my wife lives with depression and she's medicated, but she's, you know, relatively isolated. She's got a couple of kids. And, and I, I said, well, if you want my advice, here's a link to my first TEDx talk, my origin story. My advice is for you to sit down with her and you guys watch the TED. So the next week he comes back and he goes, Frank, I sat down with her. I'm watching her watching you speak on mental health on Ted. She turns to me when you're done. She goes, I had no idea that people talked about depression out loud, much less on YouTube around the world. She, it was a revelation. She had never spoken about it to anybody. Well, and we invited her. We have a, back before the pandemic, we had what I call the crazy coffee clatch. Uh, five or six of us get together every week 
at this coffee place and, and take off our game faces and just be ourselves. Hmm. And, you know, cause there was no judgment. It was like, it was like counseling, pure counseling. And right, she joined the group absolutely. because she, it was, it was very therapeutic for her to realize that people talk about this kind of thing out loud. People live with right. this. People you would never guess. Right. Live with this. And uh, I think that's, if I step on somebody's toes, hopefully there's a hundred set of toes that, <laughs> that benefited. Well, so. you're, you're just giving people permission to, allow themselves to look at this from a different perspective. Yes. And if you have something, and, you give and, voice. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm going to watch all your Ted talks, man. I mean, I, I'll confess I haven't watched one yet, but now you've got me really excited to watch them. So let me do this. I'll be up all, I, yeah. I'll send you a Gmail at the bottom of the Gmail. There's a link to four of the talks that actually made it up onto YouTube. Three of them didn't. It's a long story. Okay. Um, but Do yeah, that. it's my origin story and the suicide secret of my success and, um, mental benefits and one other one. And we'll link that to this podcast when it airs. Um, cause I certainly want to link everything you've done. Oh, uh, okay. Well, it's all in my, we can share all of my signature. Yeah. And, and then, and then you'll have a chance to tell your story to all five of my subscribers. So <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe I got six now, maybe I'm up to six. Yeah. Well, it's probably lost one. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, that's true. <laughs> yeah, on my, I'll send you the information. If you go to my website, the mental health comedian or the mental health comedian, as we say down south, right. the mental health comedian. You know, two co-authors and I wrote a series of four books on men's mental health. Awesome. Because eight out of ten people who die by suicide at this moment are men, and there was right. no literature. There was no men's mental health book, so we wrote them. It's an anthology, 12 awesome. guys in each book, 12 different problems and how they're coping, which is what men told us they want. Real men, real stories, how they're coping. So if you go to my website and you put an email address in, I narrate the books. And book number one is there in the form of an MP3 you can download for free, unabridged audio hmm. of the entire first book, and I narrate it. So I just wanted, and eventually all four will be there for free because I don't want price to stand in the way of somebody getting a copy hmm. of the book. So, well, listen, I really appreciate the time. Uh, I lied to you. I said 45 minutes to an hour and it's been an hour and 15. So, um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I find, I find the conversations that are most engaging feel like five minute conversations. Well, um, we have a lot this of is time. great. I'm happy. Our, I'm happy. Our, our paths crossed. Um, you know, maybe we were meant to have this conversation today and I'm sure somebody watching this, uh, I'm hundred percent certain somebody watching this uh, at worst is going to get a little bit different perspective on how to look at some of these traumatic and, and, uh, you know, things that happen to all of us, um, at a minimum, at a minimum, you know, and, it, and hopefully someone looks at, go ahead. And at best, somebody who has chronic yeah. suicidal ideation is going to realize for the first time in their lives, they are not a freak. They are not alone. Yep. I mean that. And nine, eight, eight, nine, eight, eight, a new number out there that yep. we need to be talking about more often that, you know, uh, uh, I met some of the people that are on the other side of the phone that actually are the ones that are the, the, the people that answer the phones. Uh, and, uh, boy, it's a, it's a way overdue, uh, to have a national call, yeah. uh, for something like this. And I have to think that, uh, that they're answering the phones, unfortunately, uh, every second of every day. Oh yes. Uh, well, uh, one of the reasons the suicide rate didn't go up overall during the pandemic, we think was there was an extra million calls to the suicide prevention lifeline. Wow. And by the way, 
in uh, the signature, my signature on the email is my phone number. And I give it out every keynote. I put it up on the screen. And I say, look, if you're suicidal, call 988 or text 741-741. If you're having a bad day, call a crazy person. And here's my cell. <laughs> I got your cell phone now, man. So if I have that thought that pops <laughs> into my head, you know, and you get some random call that says 319-899-3400. I just gave my number out. Um, you can say that's that dude in Iowa I had a podcast with. Maybe I'll talk him off the ledge, you know? Yeah. When I did, the thing I, I don't, you... I don't foresee, I don't foresee ever having that thought again, dude, but you know what? If it comes, I'm not going to fight it. I, I know, I know, I know that I don't have to identify with it. Right. You know? Yes. And here's the other reason if we have time, why I don't kill myself. The main reason, uh, my mom and dad got married back in the forties, 1940s. They wanted to start a family. My mother had difficulty getting pregnant, but she got pregnant. And she carried it to term, and shortly after it was born, it passed away. A year later, she got pregnant again. She carried it to term, and shortly after birth, it passed away. Wow. Somehow, someway, she found the courage to try again. And the third time I was born, the fourth time my sister was born. Where do you find that kind of courage? So... I feel like she was so brave and worked so hard to bring me here that I have to be at least as brave and work as hard to stick around until my appointed time. Hmm. What a way to end the show, man. That that's, 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 um, thank you very much. Sure. Um, it's been a, been a great conversation. Um, how do people reach you? Uh, on that, social media. Yeah. The, um, if you just type in the mental health comedian, uh, I, I'm 65, but I've got butt kicking great SEO. And so you, and I'm heavily branded thanks to seven TEDx talks. So yeah, just type in the mental yeah. health comedian. My website will come up, my, my, you know, my Twitter, my Facebook, my, you know. Well, um, thank you very much. And again, uh, I tell every guest, uh, keep living undeterred, but for you, I think, uh, I don't know if I have to tell you that it seems like you're doing a pretty good job on your own. Somebody said I should take resilience training. I said, listen to me. <laughs> My most resilient friends are the ones who are most suicidal because if they were not resilient, they wouldn't be here. Yeah. It's not well, about resilience. Yeah. It's not about strength. It's not, you know, it's not a character flaw. It's not a moral failing. Yeah. We don't, you know, I don't, I, don't, I could teach resistance, but <laughs> uh, resilience, but yeah. I don't think I need to take class. Yeah. Well, listen, I very much appreciate it. Uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, man. Sorry to run on so, Jeff. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a bunch. So uh, I'm sure we're going to, uh, our paths will cross. Yeah, if I can be of help, let me know. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Jeff.